0: This is Classic Business with Michael Avery on Classic 1027 in Gauteng and Fine Music Radio in Cape Town. Time for your view from the C-suite here on Classic Business in partnership with Eltron, bringing you closer to the business leaders around the boardroom table the CEOs, the founders, the CIOs, the chairs, and what makes them tick, what keeps him up at night, what gets him out of bed every morning. And in this instance, uh, what uh, lands him with a moon boot on their foot? This week's guest is driven to excel in not only a male-dominated world, but a world that has also in South Africa been largely dominated by white males. Bisani Malaleke, the CEO of African Bank. Welcome, Basani.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Now, you have to share the story. You came in hobbling on crutches. I felt terrible. We should have done this uh, interview telephonically.
1: What happened? I mean, firstly, I'm glad that I'm here because I get to see your delightful face. Um, (laughs) I was on a a motorbike trip with my team and I thought it was very important for me to show them what it would look like to dive off a motorbike and land gracefully. Uh, (laughs) And clearly I didn't land as gracefully as I thought that I would do.
0: Now that's taking leadership uh, to the next level. (laughs) (laughs) How much longer do you have left in the boot?
1: About four more weeks. So I've survived two weeks. So I'm optimistic about the next four. And uh, that's certainly, that survival instinct
0: and resilience comes through in your story, Basani. You were born in uh, Soshanguve, north of Pretoria, very well-known uh, area. You attended a local school there only to become the first black female CEO of a commercial bank in South Africa. So to say the odds were stacked against you from the start might be the understatement (laughs) of the year. Just tell me about your early years and what your dreams were as a child because I see you actually studied law
1: initially. I did. Um, So you can imagine growing up in a township in the 80s, um, it's very one becomes very focused on human rights, the sense of, oh my gosh, you know, we clearly have a hard life. How do I make sure that I get my family out of this and that I stay out of this and get my community to a better place? So I became a lawyer predominantly because my father was a lawyer and I thought my father was the Uh best thing since sliced bread. And also a lot of the people who were making a really big difference, I think, at that time were lawyers. You'll remember that Mandela was a lawyer as well and there were a bunch of people who surrounded my father who, you know, were part of his partners and were also lawyers. So I got it into my head that people who change towards the lawyers. And so it was that I went to varsity and I said to my dad, oh, I'm going to study law. And I thought he'd be excited. He said, no, you can't. Law is a jealous mistress, he said. Instead, you will study accounting. So we entered into a deal that I would study accounting, but if I hated it, then I would study law. And so I studied accounting, I did some auditing during vac work, and I thought this is going to kill me. So he agreed that I should not die as an accountant, but that I should rather try my hand at law. So I finished my accounting degree and, be, and studied law. And I loved studying law. It was just very romantic. You know, at the time, the Concord had just started and it was putting out all these amazing judgments about, mm. you know, things like uh, access to socioeconomic rights and things like, um, you know, the right to life or death penalty cases. Just beautiful judgments. It was amazing. And then I made the horrible mistake of thinking that going into a commercial law practice would be the same thing as doing con law. Oh, oh, um, oh, and oh, it was oh, not... Oh,
0: <laughs> it's uh, lots of contract work lots right. of late nights. Not so. at all
1: romantic or sexy. Not at um, all. And I didn't love law but then I went into corporate finance and that's how I got into banking.
0: And this week uh, we saw the retirement of Justice Edward Cameron uh, right. who is certainly one of the pioneers in that area of constitutional law as well. What persuaded you then? So you uh, you practiced law for a while, you realized that this isn't for you. What persuaded you to go and study an MBA and why Kellogg in particular?
1: So at that stage, I'd been at r for about four years, I think, and I realized that a lot of the people who were interviewing to come into r had international experience, which I did not have. But this also was 2008. So the financial crisis had started to play out and was becoming very difficult to get jobs overseas. But people said, well, if you can't get a job overseas, go do an MBA. So I thought this sounds fantastic. So I did a bit of research about schools in the U.S. And I visited a few business schools in the U.S. I went to Columbia, went to Harvard and I went to Kellogg. I must tell you, you know, when I walked into Kellogg, it just felt like home. You know, it felt like the students owned the school. Mm. Like at Harvard, I felt like, oh my gosh, everybody feels so grateful to be on hallowed ground, right? Kind of walking on eggshells. Whereas at Kellogg, I felt like the students really felt like this was home and they treated it like it was home and, and love the sense of community that Kellogg has. And I think that's what Kellogg is also famous for.
0: And within that uh, community, those connections, those contacts that you made back then, uh, many of them still with you today?
1: No, I can't say that. One of my professors said, you're lucky to walk out with four of strong connections yeah. coming out of Kellogg. And I think that's absolutely true. I think the people that I have retained as part of my network, they keep bringing me joy, I guess, and helping me to reach for higher levels of success.
0: Must have been an interesting time with the global financial crisis unfolding and questions around the banking sector in, in particular. We mm-hmm. see a bit of a rolling back of the Volcker rule this week, uh, which was in response to that. Uh, so it must have made for some uh, fierce academic debates.
1: Absolutely. you know, It was fascinating. We debate about what actually happened, right? Then you kind of think you all agree on what happened. Then you're like, OK, well, so how are we going to prevent this? And I just remember leaving business school still feeling like we still Still don't have a clear idea. Mm. We don't have certainty that this won't happen again. You know, that the people who are responsible for this are not feeling like they are responsible for it. And you still get that sense, right?
0: And once again, we have global debt in uh, non-financial corporates at record levels. We have central banks yeah. that have even less in their policy armory to respond if there is another d- yeah. debt-triggered financial
1: crisis. That's uh, also so true. How much have we learned? That's exactly the point. You know, and maybe the lesson is that, you know, when there are strong vested interests as there are that have been developing over just generations, it's very hard to uproot that stuff. You know, when people feel a sense of entitlement and they feel a sense of rightness, mm. you know, it's really difficult to change that.
0: You quite easily be talking about uh, some of the status quo in the South African economy as well. I was chatting to a gentleman on the show last night about access to networks to help young black entrepreneurs and those networks that uh, in white society you take for granted are certainly not as developed in black communities and so therefore there has to be some kind of systemic or structural intervention. Now on your return you then headed First National Bank's private clients business. Uh, This is 2012 now. You didn't stay there for very long though. Did you just not... uh, feel that private clients was uh, the space for you?
1: <laughs> there were many different factors that just made it a rather an environment that I just didn't enjoy and one where I didn't think I would grow. I mean FNB is a great business. This isn't about saying that it isn't. It just wasn't the place for me.
0: And then you left the bank and joined a corporate finance firm before then joining African Bank as an independent director back in 2015. What drew you into the African Bank story? Because that was around the time yeah. of Leon Kirk and everything sort of um, unfolding Folding and, and blowing up around the bank, it seemed.
1: You know, it goes back to your point a little while ago about networks and people. I joined because the chairman at the time phoned me and said, you know, I think you must do this. And after speaking to him for about an hour and a half about why he was doing it and why he thought I should do it, I mean, his story was compelling, and he himself is a very compelling man. So Louis von Zena said to me, look, Basani, African Bank has been the bank that has served black people and black communities for, I suppose, this 1975. That it is the mainstay. It is something that was founded by, in many ways, the godfathers of black entrepreneurship in South Africa. And he felt it was important that we save the organization, that we do our part to making sure that this institution survives. One, of survives and two that thrives right? because if it's a business that's designed to serve people who are the most marginalised in our society then we deserve to make sure that those people Mm. don't become more marginalised. I mean how can you say no to a story like that?
0: No that is full (laughs) of mission especially for someone such as yourself. If you look at the bank now obviously you've been busy overhauling the strategy, the structure of the bank. We still have uh, the Reserve Bank and some of the country's largest banks who stepped in with an equity injection involved. They obviously want to pull out now right. and that's going to be a phased process right. the reports in the myberg report in particular did point to glaring issues around due diligence and the Ellerine's transaction but fundamentally the business model didn't work how have you changed the business model to be more fit for purpose
1: so the first thing we had to do was to change the risk appetite, the credit risk appetite. What that practically means is that we tightened our lending criteria, which means that we can't lend to a lot of the people that we used to be able to lend to. And by so doing, we've actually seen that the quality of the credit that we write has been improving over time. So we're very proud of the fact that, you know we are seeing this constant improvement in the quality of our credit. And then the second thing that we had to do was to start to fund the book, not only from wholesale funding, but also from retail deposits. So we're very proud of the fact that that our retail deposit book that is getting you know deposits from ordinary people in the street. I mean, that has been growing at almost 100% every six months. So it's an amazing, amazing story for us. And yes, it's of, it's of a very low base.
0: off a low base, but also <laughs> because you provide probably the most attractive uh, interest yeah. in the country.
1: And that's definitely part of our strategy to make sure that we offer the highest interest across all the products that we offer in that savings and investment space. Mm. So we definitely offer the best value.
0: And it's previously at rates that were considered for high net worth clients. You've got to have 100,000 or more before you can even access those kinds of rates. And you really democratize
1: that. Absolutely. That's exactly what we're trying to do. We're trying to say, imagine if you could get the same benefit when you have 500 Rand versus when you have 100,000 Rand. And we're seeing that, right? And we're adding a lot of value to people. And we're also making it easy, right? So a big part of our strategy is to make sure that we digitize more. So we've been building our digital platform form over the last I suppose since coming out of creatorship, so since over the last three years and we're proud of the fact that now people can open an account fully online and make their deposits they can go into a branch if they want to they can do it through the contact center and we're all about creating greater levels of convenience the other thing that we're very excited about is the launch of our transactional banking account which we launched publicly in may of this year so it's been going for only a few months now and there we are seeing some really great take up with people starting now to direct their salaries into those accounts and is that, that the, my to my use world account the my world account the my world account Yes,
0: and that comes with all kinds of innovations. There are things like pockets and uh, the power pockets. You've got a savings pocket, and yeah. uh, it's really it is about innovation in a space that is very competitive at the moment. But yeah. there is also this broader conversation that we're having uh, in South Africa with the Credit Amendment Act, having ruffled some feathers. We saw Capitec, uh, which really grew into becoming South Africa's biggest bank by customer numbers through focusing on those traditionally excluded uh, by mm. commercial lenders. They've said they're actively reducing their exposure to low-income earners as a result mm. of this. There is concern about the unintended consequences here of writing off debt. How is that going to impact you? How much mm. of your book is in that uh, particular market?
1: So about 6% of our book is in that market. So it's not it's not huge. And that's because, as I mentioned to you earlier, we have been gradually tightening our lending criteria since coming out of creatorship. And in fact, we've been tightening on numerous occasions since coming out of creatorship. And as a result, that end of the market has been becoming a smaller, smaller proportion of our book. Look, I think that the bill or the act that's now been passed is devastating for low-income owners. Um, I think people who are no longer going to be able to go to the formal sector for credit are going to end up going somewhere else and paying a lot more for that credit. I also think what's worrying for us is that people who have been paying consistently and and managing their credit risk reasonably well. So what I mean by that is people who have reasonably healthy credit scores might see this as an easy way to stop paying for their credit and by so doing their credit score also deteriorate, which means they become a higher risk from a lending perspective. Mm. So I think the unintended consequences of this are tremendous, and I think it's unfortunate that the Act was passed in its current form.
0: It really is. uh, When we talk about financial inclusion, this is not going to go into the positive side of the ledger in terms of improving financial inclusion. In fact, to your point, uh, it certainly looks like it'll exclude more than it includes. We don't want to see more people in the hands of Mashanisas. I think a lot of what we, you know, we're a couple of weeks out from uh, the Marikana tragedy and the anniversary of that. A lot of that was on the back of Mashanisas. Mine workers who were heavily indebted yeah. and certainly saw no way out of it because yeah. of that exclusion. How can we be more inclusive as a financial services industry while also managing the risks, while also managing those issues that yeah. you spoke to earlier?
1: You know, I think we must all do our part. So consumers also need to be much more careful about how they manage their own cash flow. And I say that knowing that you know, low-income earners don't have the same luxury to manage cash flow as high-income earners. But that notwithstanding, they still are responsible for making sure that they're Manage their own cash flow. And I think banks can always do a lot better around how they lend. What are their lending criteria? How do they think about affordability? At which point do you not lend to somebody? Things like, you know, how many loans do you give to a single person? You know, have being stricter and being much more deliberate about making sure that we help our consumers to make smarter decisions about their lending. One thing that we're very excited about as African Bank is that we've started a process now of giving people access to these credit scores and to their credit reports from the bureaus. And our intention around that is to start helping consumers. To to understand what those career scores actually mean mm. and to actually be deliberate about managing them. So we can be giving them information about, you know, how to make sure that they improve those scores over a period of time and how to make sure that they monitor them more responsibly.
0: Yeah, inculcate that sense of uh, ownership and right. engender that sense of responsibility and I think it is about information. Oh. Empowering those consumers with the right information and uh, obviously financial education for me is a big one. Working as a financial journalist, you realise yeah. how often we'll sit across the table and we'll talk um, jargon to most people but it feels like everyday uh, English and we really need to do a lot more in the financial education space. But Sani, where we need to do more as well, and while you've been able to summit the banking sector, all the studies show that there's still a long way for South Africa in growing women into leaders. Uh, There are precious few CEOs uh, in leadership positions in the country. How do we get there? What would you like to see businesses do and society do to encourage more women business leaders?
1: You know, I think we must all own the problem. I was looking at a tweet the other day of a parliament, probably in uh, in Sweden or one of the Scandinavian countries, and the chairman in parliament, or with the chief whip or whoever, whatever the right title is, is nursing somebody's baby. And the caption is that one of the parliamentarians had brought a baby into work and the chairman was helping to nurse the baby while the parliamentarian was doing their job. I thought to myself, we need to figure out how to own child rearing as you know, both mm. men and women uh, because there's just no other way around it. I think often women end up having this need to look after their children which takes away from the time that they have to grow their careers. I think for me what worked was is the fact that I had a lot of men who were my champions, right? Who made a conscious decision to help me to progress my career. I think we all need that. We all need people who be on our side to help us to be successful.
0: And I believe speaking of successful you're also a big lover of tennis and a big fan of Serena Thank Williams. Of course. Do you, do you bring any of that into your your leadership, uh, your love of sports and you're clearly quite active when you can (laughs) be hopping on
1: motorbikes. Is that your leadership style? I must tell you, I'm not a sports fan by any stretch of the imagination. I love Serena and I love tennis but when she's not playing I don't watch. No, I suppose what I love about Serena is she's resilient. Now she's unstoppable when she's at her best and she's always striving to be her best. And I feel like those are really good qualities and we can all um, learn something from that. And
0: talk about, you know, what she's done for inspiring other women, having That's a child, great. coming back and being number one and uh, winning Wimbledon again. I mean, it's just such an amazing story.
1: Yeah. And at the same time, you know, being very deliberate about fighting for the rights of women, for equal pay, for better health care for women. I mean, she's an unstoppable force in everything that she tries tries. tries to do and I I really think we can all emulate that.
0: Well Vasani I hope uh, you will continue to be an unstoppable force uh, and uh, wish you a speedy recovery from your recent biking injury. Thanks for sharing (laughs) your insights in this week's uh, view from the C-suite.
1: Thank you so much i have enjoyed our chat.
0: That was Bassani Malaleke, CEO of African Bank, sharing her view from the C suite, which is brought to you as always by Ultron, technology partners in your digital transformation journey. For more information, visit them at ultron.com. Ultron, there when it matters.